There's the thumb of authority, and do I have the confirming thumb? I do. I have two thumbs. So here we are. Off we are starting to be. Our first announcement is is that um, uh, because of my agedness and other issues, we're going to go to a summer schedule for the entire summer at this point. That's what we're anticipating. Lori and I have a list of 17 things that we have to accomplish on this house in this summer. And it's going to take us uh, at least uh, at least three months to get all that accomplished. So what we're going to do is we're going to go every other Sunday. So that means um, we're going to take uh, the first of May off, and we'll return the May May the eighth, and we'll alternate as much as we can. If we can, if we're able to do more than that, we will. But the uh, plan so far is to go every other Sunday through the summer, and, and we're looking at September as being crazy. But uh, we have just too much that we have to do, and I'm getting old. That's just the plain, ordinary fact. I cannot do what I used to do because of all of the issues that I have. So that's what's going to happen. Uh, We'll be gone on May the 1st. We'll be back on the 8th, and then we'll be gone on the 15th. We'll be back on uh, the 22nd, I believe, is how it works. And then that will continue on all the way through Sunday, or, or every Sunday from here on through the summer. Okay, where am I? Who can remember? April 24th, 2022, lecture discussion number 172 on the book of Joel, Daniel, Revelation, Ecclesiastes, Job 1 and Job 2, Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and Genesis 15. I have to hurry. i got lots of stuff crammed into this. So those of you who have been asking me questions on the two birds, i got the two. I got some answers for you on the two birds finally today that you might hopefully be able to then extrapolate. And same thing on the narrow and the wide or the open gate. So I'll take care of both of those today. So if you're listening for those, that is in this lecture. So I have to hurry to get to it. Okay, because last Sunday, April 17, 2022, was the feast day of first fruits. I can barely say that. Too many F's in that. Uh, usually I slobber all over myself when I try that. F's and S's and R's. I never was good at that my whole life. Uh, so the, it was the feast day of first fruits. That's the third feast day of the seven feasts of the Lord. And we, and by, by we, I mean me, we undertook on that day to investigate Melchizedek of Genesis 14 on the grounds that Melchizedek is deeply connected to the feast day of first fruits. Go ahead, try to say that. Feast day of first fruits. Aha. And yes, I'm aware of the protests from the usual protestants who say that Melchizedek has no association and certainly no direct associative relationship with first fruits, to which I respond politely, as my default position is civility and charm and refinement. As you know, as everyone knows, I respond with how long before you tire of the rake to the face and the egg bombardment that comes with that position? Because you see, without controversy, first fruits is the feast day chosen by Jesus Christ, God Himself in the flesh, on which to resurrect Himself. Therefore, I say to rake egg faced people, because I am genteel, uh, the dominant vital theme of the third feast day of the seven feast days is resurrection. Resurrection. Duh, 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 a thousand times duh, 1 Corinthians 15, 20. Now, when I say resurrection, I am meaning qualified resurrection. And now you're going to go, what what do you mean by qualified? How can you have qualified resurrection? Well, you do. There are two fundamental types of resurrection. Number one fundamental type is resurrection unto salvation, eternal life, the new city of Jerusalem. Number two resurrection is resurrection unto condemnation or eternal second death, the lake of fire, Matthew 25, 41, Revelation 20, 14 through 15. All are going to be resurrected. When I say all, I'm not talking about humanity and, of course, animals. All are, all will be resurrected. What is left to be adjudicated is the destination, the destiny of all of mankind. And again, the fallen angelic realm await their eternal finality as well. Matthew 25, 41, Hebrews 13, 22. They also have the exact same destinational issue that we have. Do they go to the lake of fire or do they go to the new city of Jerusalem? The animal realm, to repeat this, Romans 5, 14, they're assured of salvation. 
It's a fact, truth of Scripture, Genesis 9, Ecclesiastes 3, Genesis 1, Genesis 7. It's not disputable in my opinion. And yes, the protestations from the same usual protesters will scream for the annihilation of animals. And they will scream also that children go into the lake of fire. They will say so. The children of the unsaved will go into the lake of fire. And the rakes embedded in their faces notwithstanding, they'll still do it. You can't stop them. And I should applaud uh, their constancy, I suppose. Uh, the, the, the viscosity of their faces is impressive. You get a rake stuck in your face, that, that's hard to do. And, and so I'll, I'll, I'll concede that. Anyway, first fruits is cemented in Scripture as the day of resurrection. And all that resurrection encompasses, the order, the omniscience, the required power, the omnipotence, just consider for just a little bit the subatomic location necessary. I have bodies that have disintegrated into dust thousands of years ago. We have bodies that have been completely atomized, Hiroshima, Nagasaki, uh, any other kind of explosion. We've had them burned. Thousands, if not millions and millions of bodies like that. Maybe billions. The dead in the sea, Revelation 2013. Likely that's a reference to the noetic flood. So it's gone on for thousands of years. And, I, and all of those particles have to be found. Information cannot be destroyed. You've heard me say that a lot. It's a law of quantum physics, not a theory, not a postulation, not a, a subjective uh, analysis. It is a law of quantum physics, both physical information and metaphysical information. That's the mental property information. That's thoughts and consciousness. None of that can be destroyed. And all of that has to be found, located, and reestablished in a resurrection. So just note the intimate relationships now between the law of information that we accept in quantum physics. When I say we, I mean me. And biblical resurrection. Look at how they sit side by side. Scripture was the first and only to reveal the enormity of information that cannot and will not be destroyed. Or There is no annihilation. That's what the Bible says. There is none. And that completely complies with uh, uh, quantum physics. The law of information cannot be destroyed. The Bible repeatedly testifies of the law of information. It does it all the time. And that's not a shock to me. It's not a shock to readers of Scripture. It's only a shock to the monistic philosophers that, that dominate physics and dominate academia today and media and all the other places that they disseminate information. So there's this universality of the resurrections just being one example of the law of information. The Bible is filled with resurrection. And it's, in my opinion, it's the greatest illustration of the law of information is resurrection. All of that to say the thesis statement for today, Melchizedek embodies resurrection which is why he has to be included in a first fruits lecture, which is what I did last week. Or was it last week? It was last week. And I know what a lot of you are thinking because it's my job to know what you're thinking. Prove it, HTRP. That's what the Internet audience, the vast Internet audience is yelling right now. You can, And so I'm going to say, okay, careful what you scream for here. Beginning from the frame of observation, what I also would call the inference of Genesis 14, but the frame of observation and this position that Melchizedek is Jesus Christ himself. So that's how I'm going to begin my proof. If Jesus Christ himself is Melchizedek, then what? The Lord God of creation. That's who he is. Colossians 1, 15, 18, John 1, 1 through 4. That is Jesus Christ. And I'm saying Melchizedek is John 1, 1 through 4 and first, or Colossians 1, 15 through 18. And I'm also going to say that Melchizedek is the angel of the Lord. Exodus 3, 4 uh, through 14. He is the I am that I am. He is the voice in the bush. He is all of those things. That is Melchizedek. That is Christ. They are the same. That is my frame of observation, if you wish. To. That's how I'm approaching it. So the theological term of all of that is a Christophany. 
And that all that means is a fancy word meaning this is an appearance of Christ. That's what is it Christophany is. And I gotta move this a little bit. Get some water. So, with the beginning or the commencement of the discussion of Melchizedek, from accepting that this is the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, this is the angel of the Lord, this is the I am that I am, this is who we're talking about, this is Melchizedek, from that position, then the logical progressions that follow are going to be astonishing. And if you don't have him in that position, there is no astonishing revelation at all. So that's one of the reasons I immediately go, if he is Christ, then look at what happened here. It's incredible. If he's not Christ, then it's almost meaningless. Because let's just recognize this. Melchizedek is, Melchizedek is clearly in authority at Genesis 14, 17 to 24. He is in charge. And when comparing Genesis 18, 33, that is Abraham and Melchizedek again. Now, everyone will say, no, that's a Christophany, that's Christ. They will not say Melchizedek is a Christophany, but they will say Genesis 18 is a Christophany. But when you compare Genesis 18.33 with Genesis 14.24 and Genesis 15.1, we can clearly see there's some little bit of differences here. And those differences are, are very, very important. At Genesis 18.33, the discussion of the destruction of Sodom is going on here. Abraham is in the position or the role of the loving kindness of God. You heard me say that. He's in the mercy role that God wishes that none should perish. The mercy of God. And the angel of the Lord is advocating for justice. Well, who is the angel of the Lord? The angel of the Lord is Christ. He's advocating for justice. That's what he's doing. And Abraham recognizes him. And we talked about that before. How does Abraham recognize him? Well, he's seen him before. It's Melchizedek. He saw him in the person of Melchizedek. So Melchizedek is now showing back up again at Genesis 18. And now they're arguing over something. And it's really not an argument. It is a dramatic theodicy, as I've mentioned in the past. They are displaying or portraying what goes on at Genesis 15. That's what they're doing. Let me explain that in a minute. So I have... Abraham in the position of advocating that can we not kill everybody? Can we not judge everybody if there are any that are not that are righteous, that are saved? That discussion is going on. What will you do to protect the saved? And that again is 2 Peter 3 9. And the angel of the Lord is advocating for holiness. And saying, he's come to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, right? That's what he's doing. So we have that, that dynamic here, Genesis 18.25. Also, it is the same as Genesis 15.17, because of this is the flaming light and the smoking firepot furnace going through the, the, the cut-in-half animals and the two birds that are not cut in half, as you know. So how does Genesis 18 conclude? So the Lord went away, I'm sorry, so the Lord went his way as soon as he had finished speaking with Abraham and Abraham returned to his place. That is how that discussion, the smoking furnace and the flaming light discussion of Genesis 15 and Genesis 18, that's how it ends in Genesis 18. How does it end? And Genesis 15 becomes the question. And if you really, how, do you, how's, how does Genesis 14 end? Because there, if I'm right, and Melchizedek is Christ, and he's in authority over Genesis 14, 17 through 24, then I'm assuming that he will be in authority over all of Genesis 15. And Genesis 14, 17 through 24 does not indicate that the conversation has ended. I submit the opposite, Genesis 14:24. Except only what the young men have eaten and the portion of the men who went with me, Aner, Eshol, Mamre, let them take their own portion. That is the end of Genesis 14. Does that sound like they split? Because it's obvious in 1833 that they split. Where is the sentence, where is the verse, where in that sentence, where in that verse does it indicate that Christ Melchizedek left Abraham? Let me read it again. Except only what the young men of Eden and the portion of the men who went with me. 
and her Eshol of Mamre, let them take their portion. That is the end of that chapter. Does that sound like an end to a chapter to you? And again, the chapters and the verses are not inspired. I know the people who do the biblical numerology and, and all of that stuff. That is put in by the translators at their own discretion. Does that sound like the end of a chapter to you? That's, that's mid-sentence almost for Abraham. What are you expecting would happen next? He is saying that to who? Who is Abraham saying this to? He's saying it to Satan. That's my opinion. He's saying it to the king of Sodom, but the first king of Sodom has already been dead in verse 10. Now i got this other king of Sodom. If you were here last week, you'll remember that. If you're not, welcome for the first time ever. Abraham says that sentence to the king of Sodom, the king of the grievously wicked Genesis 13, 13, Genesis 18, 20. The king of Sodom is considered the king of the grievously wicked, according to Scripture. So that's what Abraham says. What would we expect? We would expect the response. The, the, the wicked king is not recorded in Scripture. So, did he respond? Abraham said, first the wicked king says, give me the people and I'll give you the money. And, and Abraham says, I don't want the money. I'll never take money from you. You're wicked. I'm not going to do it. Now, whose turn is it? It's the king of Sodom's turn. It's not in the in the text. Do you think everybody just went, okay, Abraham, and they all went their own way? Obviously, that's not the case in my opinion. We don't have the response of the wicked king of Sodom. It's not recorded in Scripture. We can deduce it, though. The reply of Satan is what it is by assessing Satan's motivation. Why was Satan willing to purchase to own the persons? Genesis 14.21. He wanted the persons. He didn't want the money. He has a really good idea what money is. So why does he want the people? Almost every commentary on Genesis 14, 17 through 24 accepts that Satan agreed to Abraham's conditions. Is there anything like that? Did you, did you, you read anything like that? Did you hear anything in that last sentence that Abraham says where Satan agreed? And again, almost every commentary. I, I, I can't find, I can't find one that doesn't think that, uh, Satan agreed to Abraham's conditions. And I have an alternate computation of that because there's always math. I submit that Satan had to be coerced by force to accept Abraham's position. It's not something that he would do. Here's how the conversation went. You take the, per- you take the riches, I'll take the persons. Abraham says, no. What does Satan say? Okay. Okay. You say, no. All right. You take the persons, I'll take the money. Obviously, that's not what Satan said. Not what Satan thought. And again, I submit that Satan had to be forced to accept this proposal. He had to, it had to be, somebody had to force Satan to do it. And now, is Abraham gonna force Satan? And obviously, I'm making the comment that this is Satan. I think it only makes sense because if I'm taking the position that Melchizedek is Christ, then who's gonna be the king of Sodom in this position? It's going to be Satan, Job 1, Job 2, right? We're right back there. Matthew 4, Luke 4, Mark 1. And obviously the only one capable of the three, I have, if that's Satan, and I believe it's obviously Satan, so who can force Satan to accept conditions of anything? It can't be Abraham. He's got no capability. The only one left logically that can do this is Melchizedek. And clearly... Abraham got the persons. How do I know that Abraham got the persons? Because Lot was in the group, and I know where Lot ended up. Okay? Obviously, again, the only one who's going to enforce the freedom, the releasing of the persons, is or was Melchizedek. And the most obvious of the obvious questions now comes flying out and hits you upside the head. Why did Satan ask for the persons in the first place? Why agree with anything? Why not just take everything? What's stopping him? Listen, if Melchizedek is not Jesus Christ, what stops the king of Sodom to just take everything and kill Abraham? Why not? 
What is, who is restraining Satan? Again, the obvious answer is obvious. To me, it's Melchizedek, duh. And yes, I know the Melchizedek is just a mere human and the king of Sodom is not Satan position. That's really common in the religious academic arenas. And I am of the opinion that the scriptural evidence uh, evidences recorded in Genesis 14 and 15, Genesis 18 and Genesis 19 are in absolute collision. They're in opposition to the religious academia consensus here. There's just too much against them here. Well, he doesn't always know. He doesn't know in Matthew 4, for example. Well, I think I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a position that I hope uh, you will like. Uh, where was I? With the unsettled, the apparent unsettled condition of Genesis 14:24, we, by we, I mean me, we're going to have to rely now on Matthew 4, where what, what Dave just brought up, and Luke 4. Matthew 4.10, Luke 4.13, specifically, they had information. Matthew 4 and Luke 4 describe another one of these kind of confrontations, same as Genesis 14.17-24. Happens in Matthew 4 and Luke 4. So when I'm looking at Genesis 14.17-24, obviously I have to look at Luke and Mark, or Matthew, sorry, side by side. Mark 1 is also involved in this. Where Satan attempts to persuade someone, doesn't he, in Matthew 4 and Luke 4? He's, that's the testing of Christ in the wilderness to see if Christ is pure gold, pure deity. And Satan is testing him, not tempting him. Please stop that. We'll get to that in a minute. That's, that's uh, James and Matthew 6. Satan attempts to persuade someone to accept riches there in Matthew 4, right? Doesn't he? You remember the story? Takes him up, says, all of this can be yours. You'll be, the, you know, you'll have to do all of this. And what do you have to do in order to get all of this? Do you remember at Matthew 4? You have to worship me. That's what Satan does. Satan says, fall down and worship me. Satan did not know at the time, I don't believe that Christ was Melchizedek. I don't think he knew that because no one, that hadn't been revealed. That's the hypostatus uh, forever. That's the solution to sin. Now, he knew this was a powerful angel, maybe, but actually God himself? I don't think he knew that. He does figure it out eventually, though. Satan did not know that Christ was Melchizedek at the time of the testing. Note this worship aspect, Matthew 4, 9. That's all over Matthew and the he, Satan wants Christ to worship him. Take the money, take the kingdoms, but you have to worship me. It's the same thing here. Take the riches, but you have to give me the people. They're, they line up the same. And it compares with Genesis 14.20 and Hebrews 7.4-10. We can interpret then that hidden and implied in Satan's request to Abraham at Genesis 14.21 where he says... You take the riches, I take the people. At, at Matthew 4, he says to Christ, you take the riches, you have to worship me. So I think that it's implied and obvious when you combine the two together that Satan asked Abraham to worship the king of Sodom, which is him. So uh, you take the riches, but you have to worship me. That's what he said in Matthew 4 and look for. You take the riches and the kingdoms, but you have to worship me. Same process. Why would he change? It's been working so well for him. Again, the evidences support Melchizedek being the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Christ, and the second king of Sodom being Satan. Okay? Now, we move on to Genesis 15.1, maybe. Before we do that, i got a, I got a problem to fix. You have to, I have to emphasize, re-emphasize that the entirety of the angelic host is watching Genesis 14, 17 to 24. Do you think it's possible that I could have Satan, Melchizedek, and Abraham and the angelic host is not involved? It's not possible. Just as they did in Job 1, Job 2, Matthew 4, Luke 4, Mark 1. Every single time the Lord God Almighty is in an encounter with Satan, the accuser of the of the saints. Every time he is in an encounter with Satan, expect the angelic realm to be watching that. They're going to be present. There's no chance that they're not. They watch the death of the apostles, 1 Corinthians 4.9. Remember, the faithful angels brought the fiery law to Moses, Galatians 3.19. You thought I forgot about uh, Galatians 3.19 and Deuteronomy 33.2. 
go ahead, admit it. You thought I forgot. I'm never going to go back to it. Well, that's the, I can hear the whispering. I also hear voices, as many of you have long suspected. That's a joke. I didn't admit anything. I know what's, what can happen. Don't call the Alaska Psychiatric Institute. They have me. They've given up. I, I've evaded them for all this time. Okay. Really, finally, we bring Genesis 15.1 to the table. So here's Genesis 15.1. After these things, the word of the Lord, ha, ha, ya. So I have the word, hopefully you can hear me, of the Lord. After these things, the word of the Lord, Hehyah, to Abraham. Observe that I have intentionally not translated the Hebrew, Hehyah. I'm probably saying it wrong anyway. Why do you suppose I'm not giving you the King James or the Old King James or the any of these translations understanding of that word. It's because hey, Yah is not easy to translate. In Genesis 3.1, there's many different translations. In Genesis 3.1, Hayah is translated was. In Genesis 3.22, it's rendered has become. Genesis 11.3, and they used. Genesis 13.3, had been. Genesis 13.5, had. Genesis 13.6, become. Genesis 26.1, had occurred. Genesis 26.28, has been. That describes me, of course. Note that I beat everyone to the joke. There was a delayed laughter. Genesis 30.34, you had. Genesis 41.13, happened. Genesis 41.54, there was. What's the point? Make him stop. I could keep going. There's 334 translations of that word. What do you think most Bibles said? The point is a point that for some reason, 15.1 Genesis, the transcription in most Bible is, most Bible translations, they have translated this word as came. So they'd read it this way. After these things, the word of the Lord, let me do that better. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham. That's what they say it says. Out of 334 occurrences, 10% at best came is the translation. So that'd be 35 Okay, 34.4. Which causes myself some concern, some angst. That means I got 90% it's not came. And I want to know why. Why is came the choice of Genesis 15? Is it correct? I don't think so. First off, the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord. Compares wonderfully, of course, with the angel of the Lord. There's no doubt that the angel of the Lord is Christ. And there is no doubt the word of the Lord, John 1, 1 through 4, is Jesus Christ. Patently, unmistakably, Jesus Christ. Identified. The wise students of scriptures have long ago capitalized the word of the Lord at Genesis 15.1 and Genesis 15.4 because it appears in both places. And so they have taken out the lowercase and they have put a big W in there to make sure they know that this is not just a spoken element here. In other words, it's not a throwaway line. Once you've corrected the, the, the capitalization, because it's a glaring omission, and, and it's ubiquitous uh, to every translation that I have found, only when you've finally got that right, you know that this is something important. The word of the Lord unto Abraham was Abraham, become, become Abraham. Whatever the real translation is, I don't believe it is Cain. Once you've figured out the word of the Lord is incredibly important in that sentence, then we can proceed with Genesis 15.1. And notice the behold of Genesis 15.4, if you're reading ahead out there. 
And behold, the word of the Lord, John 1, 1 again. Behold, the word of the Lord unto him. Notice that I omitted the italic came. It's going to be in your Bible. It's not in the, in the Hebrew. Hayah is not in 15.4. 15.4 is literally a repetition of 15.1. The Hebrew word of Genesis 15.4 is elah, meaning about or forth, unto or then. So you can read this. Uh, the word of the Lord unto Abraham. The word of the Lord about or forth, Abraham. And of course, whenever you see a behold, hey, I woke up four people with that. Whenever you see a behold, what's going to happen next? You're going to see there's going to be an incredible truth is coming. Every time you see a behold, he's just going to say, stop, stop, stop. Something amazing is going to happen here. So what is the monumental factor principle that follows the behold of Genesis 15.4? And again, behold the word of the Lord unto him. Behold the word of the Lord unto him. What's the great truth that's coming? The word of the Lord unto him refutes, is redressing. The context, if you will, is correction. What's happening is Abraham makes a statement at 15.3. He says, I have no offspring. What is Abraham saying? He's saying something that's inside of time. And what does the word of the Lord do? Because the word of the Lord is a person. What does the word of the Lord do to him? He corrects him. He says, no, the seed, Galatians 3.16, Genesis 3.15, will come through you, Abraham. That's what he says. Abraham says, I don't know, you know, what are we going to do here? You're talking, I'm going to have all this stuff and blah, 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 but I got nothing. And the outside of time, God says, you do. I know you do. I can see him because I can see all of time outside of time at the same time. And you have an offspring. And, of course, you go through all the Sarah stuff who laughs and becomes forever. Uh, how do I put it? Not infamous, but certainly uh, attention drawn to her lack of faith. Okay. God says, the word of the Lord, who is God himself, says, no, you will have a seed. It will come through you. The seed, Galatians 3.16, Genesis 3.15, will come through you. The seed of the woman is coming through you. Not a seed, but the seed himself, says God. <coughs> the seed of the woman again. Also, Christ himself, Galatians 3.16, is to be through Abraham. Now, why? Why did, here's how it goes. Starting at 15.1, the word of the Lord, Jesus Christ, is unto Abraham. Doesn't say came, says unto Abraham. Now, and then he says to Abraham, Abraham says to him, I'm not going to have an offspring, all this is crazy. Paraphrasing, and Christ says back, no. You're going to have the seed. The seed is coming through Abraham. And so, why does God say that to him? Because of Genesis 14, 17 through 24. This all happens. Genesis 15, 1 happens because of, it's dependent upon Genesis 14, 17 through 24. What happened at 17, 24? Genesis 14, that's Melchizedek, Abraham, the persons, the riches, and Satan. So what happened there? Again, to repeat, the seed of the woman is coming through Abraham's. Why? Because of Genesis 14, 17 through 24. The connection can't be denied. Follow the thread through Melchizedek. There's a cause and effect here. It's obvious the conditions and events of Genesis 15 are traceable to the cause, which is Genesis 14, 17 through 24. It is imperative that you learn to recognize what statements and actions of Abraham result in a response. Now, that's a heretical statement, right? But it's a human statement, a response by the word of God. Again, always the word of God, the word of the Lord is a person. It's God himself. It's Jesus Christ. He is the word of, the, of God. He is the word of the Lord. 
Anyway, Abraham rejects Satan's offer of riches. And after that, after these things, and that's the rejection, that's the rebuking of Satan by Abraham, because that's what Abraham does. He rejects Satan and he rebukes Satan. And that's what constitutes the after these things of Genesis 15.1. That's the these things in concert with the bread and wine, because Melchizedek, just like Christ, brought communion. How do you dis- discard that? But they do. They say, oh, I just, I don't know why he brought communion. But he did. The first communion in Scripture, the first mention, is Melchizedek did it. Do you think that's an accident? Do you think that has no connection to what Christ did? So, what is the outcome? What are the impactive results that comes after Abraham's rejection of Satan? Well, to to repeat this, maybe try to make it more clear. Melchizedek happened. What that? What I'm trying to say. What resulted from what he said to Satan? Well, Melchizedek gave him something. It said Melchizedek had occurred was to Abraham in a vision. So Abraham has a vision. Now we still don't even know what that vision is. It's incredibly. complicated as I said last week he is inside of something that he is actively involved in so he's put into a vision and functions in it as if it is real which makes me think that the vision is real in in fact but so what happens is is now after he rebukes Satan and rejects Satan then Melchizedek comes Ah, that's not the right word. Melchizedek, who is already there, standing next to him, he now gives him a vision and he says, fear not. And that, by the way, is the... ah. See, I haven't erased these because I'm doing good. I really am. That, by the way, is the only consistency in the translation is that they know that Hayah is in the past tense. That's very important. And it also not insignificant is the fear not, the tore. It's the very first mention of fear not in the Bible. So we have the first mention of bread and wine. We have the first mention of belief. We have the first mention of fear not. Is that Christ? Or is it just some guy? The some guy position, I think, is, is impossible to defend. But how important is all of that? Obviously, Abraham's afraid because he says, fear not. God says to Abraham, Christ says to Abraham, fear not. So what's Abraham afraid of? Afraid of what? What in Genesis 14, 17, 24 had Abraham afraid? What's there? Well, Melchizedek, who is Jesus Christ, I know the people that hate that position are tired of me saying it. We don't care, do we? He says, I, your shield, your reward shall be exceedingly great. Now, what was Melchizedek, the word of the Lord, shielding Abraham from? Better question is who was he shielding Abraham from? Obvious answer is obvious. He is the shield of Abraham from Satan. So that makes it obvious again that Satan is the king of Sodom, the one that is there, not the one that is dead. Now Genesis 15.1 explains Matthew 6.13. Oh, does it really? Yes, it does. Because a lot of people are confused by Matthew 16. Oops, sorry, 613. I put this on the board so that I can slow down a little bit, but also people would always prefer that I do that. That's what Genesis 15.1 has Matthew 6.13 in it. For those of you who have always wondered about Matthew 6.13, and it's confounded the commentators for centuries. Here it is. And do not lead us into temptation. But deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. 
Chachmen, the Hebrew. And the Chachmen in Hebrew is I stand firm, fastened in secure belief. The word for temptation in the Greek at Matthew 6.13 is Pierre Asmon. It is also used at James 1.12 where it is also translated temptation. James 1.13, let no one say when he is tempted to say, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evils, nor does he himself tempt anyone. So how do we explain Matthew 6.13 where it says, do not lead us into temptation? That's what Christ says. This is his prayer. He's giving us this prayer. Clearly, Matthew 6.13 and James 1.12 through 1.12 and 1.13, they got to, we've got to look at those together in tandem. The side-by-side analysis, which generally is not done. That's not the norm here. They don't put James 1.12, 1.13 with, with Matthew 6.13 very often. Jesus Christ has no capacity for evils and therefore no vulnerability to evils. Unfortunately, many have written otherwise, especially so are the idiots of Hollywood. Can I say idiots of Hollywood? Can I? Some of the idiots of Hollywood might be offended by me saying idiots of Hollywood. That's uh, Sadly, the church of our time has been contaminated by the idiots of Hollywood. As is most of the East Coast media, no one seems to be able to ask even a simple basic question. Example one, did God direct the woman, Genesis 3, 2 through 5? Did he direct the woman to take and eat from the tree of surely die? Genesis 2.17. Did he do that? 1 Timothy 2.14. Matthew 6.13 definitely refers to Genesis 2.17, Genesis 3.2-5, and Genesis 15.1. Was the Lord God leading the woman into temptation? Did God essentially murder the woman? Allow me to repeat the fundamental truth. God is never evil. Never. So there's that. Full stop. The translators of James 1-2 rendered perisomai, moi, effectively the identical Greek word is perisomon. They, they rendered that one as trials. One is temptation. The other, at 1-2 of James, is trials. So they wish for us mere uh, amateurs to replace temptation of Matthew 6-13 with trials or testing. That's what they want us to do because they know we got a problem here. Houston, Apollo 13 is not going so well. What do we do? And, and so they, they, did, they did that because of James 1-2. And I have no quarrel with that. But the issues actually haven't been affected by it. Does God lead us into trials and our testing? The answer is, yes, he does. He certainly did with Israel, Exodus 15.25, as Exodus 16.4, both of which led to the debacle or the complete collapse of Israel at Exodus 17.2 and 17.7. Is God among us or not? And of course, that takes us to Matthew 4 and Luke 4, where Satan is doing the same thing. The same verses. Mark 1. It's the same. Genesis, it's the same as Genesis 14.21 through 24. Hopefully, that made sense to somebody. Okay. One, again, Genesis 14, 17 through 24, and Genesis 15 show themselves in this discussion of Matthew 6, 13, James 1, 12, and 13, James 1, 2. Here we go again. We can't get Genesis 15 out of anything. I made the comment earlier today to, to Supper Dave. I said, Genesis 15 has got to have everything in it. It's got to, and it does. It's just amazing. Those who want to take Melchizedek out of 15, Genesis 15, I, I just don't know what to say to you. I, I don't. I feel bad. Because if you put Melchizedek where he belongs, which is in Genesis 15, if you have no break between 14.24 and 15.1, if, if it's just perfect symmetry, if it just the transition is, is flawless there, then this entire world opens up. For today, at least recognize. How am I doing on time? Pretty darn good. Look at me go. I should celebrate. For today, at least recognize that Matthew 6.13 adds to the context of who? Deliver us from who? 
the evil one. Who's that? It's not evil, not deliver us from evil. If you actually look at the translation, it's the evil one. Well, where does the evil one show up? Genesis 3, 4, where else does he show up? Oh, that would be Genesis 14, 17 through 24. Why would you say that it's not him there? It makes no sense because he, Melchizedek Christ says to Abraham, I am your shield, I will deliver you from the evil one. That's what he says to him in 15, 1 of Genesis. So that's Matthew 6, 13 given to us. Again, Matthew 6.13 adds the context of the evil one, but deliver us from the evil one, Satan and or the Antichrist. So what is the test, trial, temptation that is at the core of Matthew 6.13? You have to figure out what it is. He does not tempt you into sin. He does not. So what is the temptation? And yes, I'm stating, proposing that a singular specific issue is being referenced. There is a single temptation or testing here. Our trial here. It's all the same. But it's not sin. Because he, he can't. Don't ever say he does. It's an issue that is bonded, that's coupled to Satan himself. And it has something to do with Genesis 14, 17 through 24. What Abraham does there. And Exodus 15, Exodus 16, Exodus 17, Job 1, Job 2, and Genesis 3, 4. It's got something to do with all those. Again, whenever Satan has an encounter with the Lord God of creation, then everybody's watching because this goes back to Exodus, uh, I'm sorry, Ezekiel 28:16 and Isaiah 14. And obviously, and I'll cut, clean this up in a couple of weeks, belief is once again at the forefront, in case you were wondering how this all plays into Genesis 15:6 and Galatians 3. The easiest question of the easy questions here is why would God, Jesus Christ, instruct us to pray something that he doesn't, that, that doesn't happen? How do I explain this? What, what he's having us pray for is something that isn't, it's, it doesn't make any sense. Let me put it this way. He would never ask us to pray for something that he cannot, that's a bad word, that he would never do. Don't lead us into temptation and sin. He's never going to do that. He says so. I don't do that. I have none, none of that in me. There is no sin inside of God. It doesn't, so again, why does he teach us? Which is what he's doing in Matthew 6, 5 through 14. It's a teaching prayer. In this manner, therefore, pray. Why does Christ God teach us to pray for obvious things? I guess is a way to phrase it. Let's hope that works. Father in heaven... Yeah, that's pretty obvious. May your name be glorified. Okay, good idea. May your kingdom be established. Well, that's an absolute certainty. Your will be finished. Okay, your will will be finished. No doubt about that. This is like praying for what? I mean, it's just, these are givens, absolutes. He wants you to pray for absolutes. The earth and heavens, mankind and angels be renewed. Forgive our sins. Give us manna and communion. May we have eternal life in your forever kingdom. That's what Matthew 13, 6.13 is telling us to do. Why? Why pray for these things? When you pray, pray like this. Pray this. Why? If you figure out why you're praying for those things in that order, then lots of things will come for you and you'll be off and running. Now, I'd like to go into it, but we're running out of time. Hopefully, there are enough clues there that you've all figured it out. If you ask why pray for these things, you're on your way to figuring it out. Now, where am I now? Have I forcefully said enough times that there is no time interval between Genesis 14, 17 through 24 and Genesis 15, 1? I hope so. I hope I did that. Did I mention the wide gate and the narrow gate? And here we go again. I'm fairly confident that most of you have begun to hear the faint whispering of Matthew 7, 13 through 14. Again, this is a Sermon on the Mount, right? And you've heard the heard Matthew 7, 13 through 14, which follows Matthew 6. Uh, 7 comes after 6. Give him the big money. 
But while I've been pre- presenting Matthew 6 and James 1, Matthew 7, 13 infers that there are two gates. And, uh, that pro- and these two gates say something. They both proclaim that they lead to eternal life. That's what those gates do. One is the narrow gate and one is the wide gate. A couple questions. Why are there gates? Why are there any gates at all? There's no gates. There's The gates are wide open in the new city of Jerusalem. Are they wide open at Matthew 7.13? The answer is no. One is wide open. One is not. Why the difference between these two gates and the gates that are opened in the new city of Jerusalem? Who built the gates? Why is the narrow gate called a narrow gate? Is that even right? Why is the wide gate wide? Why are there two birds and there's two gates? Oh my. I should read Matthew 7, 13 through 14. I better do it. Gotta hurry, gotta hurry, 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 hurry. Up to this point, I thought I was doing great. Now I'm starting to get scared. Come on, be faster, Steve. Be a professional. (laughs) My fingers don't work. Okay, we finally got close to enough. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it, because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. That's what it says in my translation. Is that right? Probably not. Once again, you have to be very careful. Jesus Christ, the Lord God Almighty, the the Word made flesh, the Word of the Lord, the angel of the Lord, the God Almighty of all creation in a manner similar to Matthew 6, 5 through 13, now is continuing his Sermon on the Mount. And this is the better way it should be. Enter by the straight. When I say straight, I mean S-T-R-A-I-T. That's not the straight that you might be thinking. Enter by the straight, which is the guarded, which is the girded, which is the pent up. Enter by the straight gate. Or the, let me just say the guarded gate. For wide is the open gate. That gate is open. Why is it open? Why is one guarded and one open? The one that's guarded is the one that leads to life. The one that's open leads to destruction. Start answering that question. Who who built the gates? Did the same person build both gates? Or are the different per- persons? We're right back at Genesis 15, aren't we? Genesis 14, 17 through 24. Here we go again. Okay. The open gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it because the pressed or the hemmed in or the guarded or the uh, some would even say hidden gate. I don't like the hidden gate so much, but I can understand why they would say it. And the girded, fastened, reinforced gate is the way that leads to eternal life. And there are few finding it. So, one gate has a door. Who's the door? Now you know who built that gate. Who built the ark, 616? Noah and somebody put a door on it and closed the door from the inside. John 10, 7 through 9. What's he say about himself? I'm the door. So there's the door of the gate. In fact, you just call it a door. There's two doors. One, there is no door. And the other is there's a door. The other gate is wide open. No one's guarding the open gate. Why is no one guarding the open gate? Why does Satan want to take the people? Same question. There's... Two ultimate ends then for mankind, eternal life or eternal destruction. The new city of Jerusalem from above or the lake of fire, the utter darkness. I can't emphasize Numbers 22 through 26 strongly enough with respect to the reinforced, guarded, straight, hemmed in gate. What is Numbers 22, 26? That's who? That's Balaam and the donkey, in case you're wondering why does, why do we do that lecture? Traditional commentary has adapted the narrow gate concept and the resulting popular opinion is that salvation is difficult. You see it all the time. 
It's law and grace, not or grace. And you should immediately recognize the you know, the opinion that salvation is difficult. They love to say it, and they, they'll say, you have easy believism, and we have this hard, really difficult salvation, so we're better than you. And the response by uh, Charles Ryrie was, if you think believing, getting a, a, a sinner to, to believe is easy, then you have misunderstood everything. So yay for Chuck Ryrie. Okay. You recognize that salvation is difficult, and you recognize again that that is a works-based election. Thus, it cannot be true. At Numbers twenty-two twenty-six, the angel, the angel of the Lord, there he is again. Jesus Christ Himself stood in front of Balaam, didn't he? And there was no turning to the right hand or to the left hand. You couldn't move. He was stuck. Why couldn't he go backwards? Everybody asks me that. Why didn't he just back up? He's beaten that donkey three times. Is the donkey going to back up? No. He can't go because the donkey won't go. Yay, donkey lady. Okay? And so the, what's the only way that Balaam can go down this narrow path that leads to the door? Because there's the door. Balaam's walking down the path to the door. Matthew seventeen thirteen. Right? And he can't back up. And he's going towards the only one who is the way to eternal life. John 14.6 So see what's going on there? Can't go back. Can't go left. Can't go right. Only thing I can do is go forward. What doctrine is that? That's right. It's eternal security. Good for you. You get a skittle. The guarded gate, this path, is a one-way path. Why is Christ the only way to salvation is the question here. This is the question of Matthew 7, 13, and 14. So when you read 7, 13, 14, say, why is Christ the only way to salvation? Lastly, as you know, you cannot put the genie back into the tube or the toothpaste back in the bottle. You can't do either of those. You ever try to put the genie back in the tube? You can't do it. Once you go down the path to the two birds, he finally gets to the two birds, doesn't he? Of Genesis 15:11, there's no turning around, Balaam. Once you go down this two-bird path, you are going forward, and you're never going to stop. You just keep going. Birds are symbols in Scripture of the saved and the Holy Spirit, and likewise they portray the wicked ones of Satan. There's Satan again, right? Matthew 13:4, 13:18, 13, 13:32, Mark 4:15 even says the birds are Satan. Can't even miss it in case you're oblivious. So we have this list now. I should put it on the board and go for another 45 minutes, but I won't. I'll rattle it all off. I have two birds, don't I? I have two gates, don't I? I have two trees. I have goats and sheep. I have unsaved and saved. I have Israel as the wife and the Gentiles are the bride. And that's why Miriam has leprosy. Right? Galatians 3.14. That's why Miriam got leprosy, because she didn't want Moses to have what? A Gentile bride. But Paul says in Galatians 3.14, the whole point was Christ was going to give the same salvation to the Gentile. So you see, that's why Miriam's got leprosy. Can I move on? Angels and mankind both have free will to reject Christ, and both are citizens of the New Jerusalem. Animals are also citizens of the New Jerusalem, but they will not reject Christ. Why don't they have the free will to reject Christ? Got to answer that question. How come they got it? They got it. They don't. What's going on there? Obviously, God thought ahead, didn't he? He had to have a Romans 5.14 situation. Where am I? Body and spirit. In the bre- of the, I'm sorry, I have the body and I have the spirit of the breath of life. I have the second death and what else do I have? What's the complement? The second life. I have a second death. I've got to have a second life. What's the second death? It's the lake of fire. What's the second life? It's the new city of Jerusalem. I have how many witnesses? Two witnesses, I have clean and I have unclean. I have law or grace. Can you see it has to be law or grace? Has to be. I have two tablets. I have two testaments. I have the greater light and the lesser light. I have something that will make people mad. I have male and I have female. Yeah, now now, now they're going to come for me now, aren't they? 
How dare you say something so obvious? God divides on the second day. Divides. Heaven and earth. Death and resurrection. Creation and resurrection. You see all these patterns. So which ones do the two birds display? All of them? Just a couple of them? I'll give you one of them. How about that? I'm going to give you the two gates, law or grace, the second death and the second life. You will say, that's three. I can count. Is No, it's no. It's really one. It's all, all one. The three are one. The two birds were not cut in two because of the second death and the seventh... Ah, I can't say it. Because of the second death and the second life. Because of works or grace and because of the open gate and the one-way guarded gate. That's why the two birds are not cut in half. I will see you on the 8th of May. I hope. Can't be sure. Could be out of here. That's right. We have to have that worldwide celebration of Cinco de Stevo has to come. And that tires me out. 